Hello, this is Allison Carter, Occupational Therapist with the Milestones Podcast. This is episode 89, and today I will be talking about issues with sleep in early intervention. It has been quite a while since I've been on here. I thought with all the staying at home and working from home, I would have a lot more time to release new shows for you all, but that has unfortunately not been the case. I've still been really busy. Um, I have been working on this episode for quite a while, so I'm happy to finally be done with it and getting it out there for you guys to listen to. You might have noticed a new intro song. This is an original song created by my 13-year-old son on piano. It's called A New Normal. The song is much longer, but I cut out just a short piece to add to the beginning of the show. And you can hear a bit more of the song at the end of the show. My plan starting this year is to get more done on Patreon. I have been on there for a while, but I haven't really done that much with it before. If you don't know what Patreon is, it is a site for creators, artists, musicians, um, people like that, a place for us to provide these creations to you and also make some income while doing it. Um, I've decided to start adding more content to my Patreon site. Specifically, I will be adding some videos, audio clips, things that are not included in the actual podcast episodes. These will be things that add to the episodes and will also be new content that I just decided to share with you. As I've mentioned in the past, I do not make a living doing this podcast show. I do enjoy it very much and I want to continue for as long as I can. But even with all of the support that you have given me through the Amazon clicks and purchasing the CEUs for me, it still really doesn't add up to enough to make a living off of and to, to allow me to do this as more of a full-time job. I would love to be able to do that for you and for myself. If I was able to do this full-time, I could be putting out at least one show per week and ideally more than that. I don't know exactly how many subscribers I have to my podcast, but I do know that I have a lot of downloads every month, and especially on the months when I get to add a show, which hasn't been very many lately. Um, but even without that, I still have a lot of downloads continuing. If everyone who listens to this show would please get on my Patreon site and become a patron for just $1 a month, I would fairly quickly be able to increase the amount of episodes that I can put out for you guys. By signing up and supporting me on Patreon, you will get exclusive access to the new video and audio content that I will be putting on there. Consider, consider it bonus footage and a thank you for taking the time to support the work that I put into doing this show. I do all of it myself from writing and typing each show, recording, editing, producing, uploading to the apps, maintaining the blog and website to support the show, and everything else in between that I didn't think of. It does take a lot of time to get all of that done, and currently, by the time I pay for all those systems to be up and running and continue running, I probably break even at best with the money that I bring in from the affiliate and the CEU income. I currently have one Patreon supporter, and I would really like to say thank you to Rebecca for her continued support. You can find the link for my Patreon site in the show notes for today, or you can go to patreon.com and search either Allison Carter or Milestones Podcast, or just go to my website at mymidwesttherapy.com and click on the orange button that says become a patron on the right side of the screen. Thank you in advance for supporting me and this show. Now for today's show, I want to address issues with sleep in the early intervention world. This was a topic that was brought up by a listener who wanted to hear more about the subject from my perspective. Of course, we all know how important sleep is for everyone's health and well-being. 
But what happens when you are working with a family who has a child that has difficulty with sleeping? And to clarify, I'm talking about children who have more difficult nights than good nights of sleep. Not just the occasional once every few months the child has a hard time getting to bed. I would consider that to be more of a one-time thing than a regular event that happens every night or almost every night. There are different aspects of sleep issues to consider. Unfortunately, like most other things in life, there's usually not one simple reason why a child would have sleep issues or one simple way to help them resolve their sleep issues. For the purpose of this show, I will be breaking things down into four categories of why a child with um, may have difficulties with sleeping. Number one is medical reasons. Number two, sensory processing. Number three, behavioral. And number four would be some combination of the first three. Number four is, of course, what makes our lives interesting, even though theoretically I can break this topic down into specific categories. Ultimately, we have to consider the possibility of all of them. Rule some out when we can and figure out how the rest of them might affect each other. Now, starting with medical reasons, one of the most common we see in early intervention is sleep apnea. Infant apnea is defined by the American Academy of Pediatrics as, quote, an unexplained episode of cessation of breathing for 20 seconds or longer, or a shorter respiratory pause associated with bradycardia, cyanosis, pallor, and or marked hypotonia, end quote. The pauses in breathing occur when the infant or child is sleeping. Healthy newborns and infants will rarely have sleep apnea. Apnea of prematurity is the most common form of apnea in infants. There are different types of apneas. Central apnea is typically a result of the brain not communicating with the muscles needed for breathing. The infant stops breathing for a period of time because there is a lack of signal from the brain or brainstem to their breathing muscles. This is less common than the other type of apnea. The other type of apnea called obstructive apnea, which is where the airway becomes blocked due to the soft tissue in the back of their throat collapsing. This might be from such things as their, to um, their tongue, tonsils, or adenoids, things like that. And finally, a mixed apnea is when the infant has central apnea immediately followed by obstructive apnea. Premature infants, especially ones that were born with low birth weight, often have this type of apnea if they have sleep apnea. One of the biggest issues with apneas is the lack of oxygen in the infant's blood. This is also known as hypoxemia. One of the things that can happen as a result of lack of oxygen in the blood is hypoxia or decreased amount of oxygen in the tissues of the body. For babies who are born preterm, a lot of times they are born so early that their lungs don't have a chance to fully develop in utero. So hypoxia, or an inadequate supply of oxygen to the tissues of their lungs and other organs, can be very serious. Newborn preemies are often placed in incubators or humidic cribs where they get extra oxygen, or they might be on a CPAP or continuous positive airway pressure. CPAP is a machine that provides continuous air pressure to keep their airways open. This is especially beneficial for infants who have underdeveloped lungs and may not be able to keep their airways open on their own. Common signs of sleep apneas in infants are things like bluish colored skin, lips and mouth, and a very slow heartbeat or bradycardia. Of course, the most common symptom is that they stop breathing for a period of time. If they stop breathing for 10 to 15 seconds, this is considered to be very serious. 
Okay, so I'm going to go back over the types of apneas in a little bit more detail right now. So first, central apnea, as I mentioned before, is where the brain is not sending the correct signals to the muscles that control your breathing. This can happen in newborn preemies because their brain and nervous system may not be completely developed yet. Specifically, the brain is not sending signals to the diaphragm and the lungs to tell them to work. In this case, the infant will stop breathing and will not start breathing again until the brain sends signals to the diaphragm and lungs to activate. This can be very dangerous because it means that the brain is not getting enough oxygen since the infant is not continuously breathing at a normal rate. Some of the signs of central sleep apnea can be things like pauses in breathing or abnormal breathing patterns during sleep, waking up a lot from sleep, waking up abruptly and having shortness of breath or being tired during the day. There will be no chest movement during the periods of apnea. This is because the body is not attempting to breathe because the brain is not sending the correct sig signals to tell the body to breathe. The treatment for this may be either regular oxygen, usually with the nasal cannula through the nose or CPAP. Doctors typically recommend that infants with sl central sleep apnea should sleep on their backs. The other type, obstructive apnea, can occur in infants and really at any age, but is most common in children ages two to six years old. Obstructive sleep apnea is where a child stops breathing while they are sleeping. This usually happens because the airway becomes blocked during sleep. Kids who have low tone may be at higher risk for this type of apnea. They may have difficulty with breathing even when they're awake. Then when they fall asleep and everything relaxes even more, the airway can become blocked. The airway is most likely to be blocked by tonsils or adenoids, but it may also become blocked by their tongue if they have low tone or if they have an enlarged tongue or hyperglossia. What may happen is while they are sleeping, the airway becomes blocked and this causes them to stop breathing briefly. This brief period of time might cause them to wake up at least partially, which could cause muscle contraction and reopen the airway so they can breathe again. This might happen many times throughout the night, so they never really get a good full night of sleep. Although they might not fully wake up, they will often appear restless and just not get good restful sleep. The child may seem to be tired during the day, even when they first get up in the morning, which is when most kids are generally rested after sleeping all night. Kids who might be at a higher risk for obstructive sleep apnea are kids with Down syndrome, kids with low muscle tone, enlarged tonsils or adenoids, enlarged tongue like kids who have Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, or kids with craniofacial syndromes and children that have a smaller jaw. The most common sim symptom of obstructive sleep apnea is snoring. They may actually snore loud or just be considered a noisy breather while sleeping. Other symptoms may include restlessness while sleeping or tossing and turning all night, periods of time where they are not breathing while sleeping, mouth breathing, irritable or cranky while awake, complications with tonsils or adenoids, or frequent ear infections. Unlike central sleep apnea, there will be chest movement because the infant is still receiving signals from the brain to breathe. The signals are getting to the diaphragm and lungs, but the air is being blocked by a physical structure in the way. To determine whether or not a child has sleep apnea, their doctor may decide to do a sleep study. The child is monitored in the hospital overnight for this. The sleep study will be able to record all of the child's activity while they're sleeping, which gives the doctor information about how to proceed, whether that involves surgery, CPAP, supplemental oxygen, or whatever may benefit the child the most based on their findings. Some doctors will recommend using a sleep apnea monitor and possibly a heart monitor at home. 
The doctor might also recommend that the infant sleeps on their tummy or in prone position in order to potentially decrease the airway obstruction. Many times, infants who have sleep apnea will outgrow it with age, with only using supplemental oxygen or CPAP to get by until they do. Without treatment, though, sleep apnea might cause the infant to have other complications like failure to thrive, high blood pressure, or other heart problems. Another medical issue that may affect an infant or child's sleep is reflux, or GERD, gastroesophageal reflux. If a child has reflux, the symptoms may affect their ability to sleep, mainly due to positioning. When the infant is in an upright position, gravity can assist with keeping the acid down and taking the acid back down to the stomach area. When the infant is lying down, the acid from the stomach is more likely to stay in the esophagus, which can make them uncomfortable and wake them up or keep them awake. This is when they will most likely feel a burning sensation in their throat or esophagus that obviously doesn't feel good. Parents may report that the child will fall asleep fine while they are holding them up at their chest or shoulder, but when they lay them down in their crib, they may wake up fairly quickly and they might cry or be fussy and seem uncomfortable. Doctors may recommend or prescribe some type of antacid medication to help reduce the burning symptoms of the acid. Other times, changing certain aspects of the infant or child's diet might help decrease the acid reflux. For example, eliminating things like acidic foods, citrus fruits, things like that, especially later in the afternoon or early evening. Common recommendations for reflux and sleeping include keeping them in an upright position for at least 30 minutes after eating, sleep in an inclined position, and some doctors may recommend sleeping on their tummy or in prone position. There are a lot of other medical issues that could also affect sleep, things that, such as restless leg syndrome or muscle tone issues, gas or bloating, constipation, allergies or fluid in the ears, ear infections, and sometimes even just a simple stomach ache. It could be an issue with teething that cause, that's causing pain in their mouth and keeping them awake. Now, moving on to the second category of reasons on my list why kids may have sleep issues is due to sensory processing. There are so many possibilities of reasons why sensory issues might affect sleep. No one could possibly cover them all, but I will go over some of the more common issues that I've seen, and hopefully that will be enough to help you recognize signs or symptoms in kids that you work with or kids that you might live with. Issues with sensory processing present themselves in so many different ways. We have to understand sensory processing well in order to begin to figure out what might be going on with each individual. Now, I did a full episode on sleep related to sensory issues back in episode 27, which seems like forever ago now. I will cover some of those same ideas again here, but refer back to that episode for additional information if you want. The biggest sensory areas that tend to affect a child's ability to sleep are usually auditory, proprioception, and vestibular or a combination of any of these. Auditory sensory processing can affect a child's ability to sleep well, especially if they are sensitive to auditory stimuli. With auditory processing sensitivity, a child may have a difficult time blocking out all of the quote unquote little sounds in their room or in the house. Basically their brain pays attention to all of the sounds in the environment because it doesn't have the ability to habituate or, in other words, essentially ignore the sounds that really don't matter. Sounds such as the heater or air conditioning um, blowing air out of the vents, the ceiling fan in their room, the pull string of the ceiling fan tapping against the fan as it moves, the creaking of the floorboards as the house settles with cold or warm air at night, cars driving by outside, 
other people in the house making typical noises, adults talking or watching TV or doing dishes, any number of sounds that might be going on in the house at night can be very distracting to a child who cannot block them out. This is why many people end up sleeping with a box fan or a floor fan because they are typically pretty loud fans and they block out the other background noises for you. So you only hear that one sound of the fan blowing. It can make it easier for people to fall asleep when their brain is not working overtime, trying to pay attention to every little noise. The one noise is happening and they will eventually, hopefully be able to fall asleep because their brain may finally be able to rest if they can't hear the other sounds anymore and they're only hearing the one noise of the fan. Noise machines are pretty popular for the same reason. Some noise machines have a variety of sound options or even playing a CD or music through an electronic speaker is a good option for some people. There are specific white noise apps that are pretty good that can be downloaded through iTunes, iTunes or other app stores. This is often a trial and error to figure out which sounds are actually calming for each individual. For example, some people may like the sound of a rainforest rain shower, while other people might like the sound of a campfire, and others like night sounds like crickets chirping. Some of these sounds can still be very overstimulating for people who are sensitive because the sounds change. There may be thunder in the rain shower or a louder popping of the campfires and the crickets and different insects making new sounds. Any changes in the sounds can actually be stimulating instead of calming because their brain will pay attention to the sounds each time they change. In that case, Choosing a more solid sound like white noise or the sound of a fan or anything that doesn't have a lot of variety in the sounds might be a better a, um, calming solution. Sometimes using the olfactory sense or sense of smell in children that are not sensitive to scents can be one strategy for helping them sleep. Scents that are thought to be calming such as vanilla or lavender can be used through a variety of sprays essential oils, lotions, soaps, detergents, and so on. Proprioception is another area of sensory processing that can affect sleep. This can usually go one of two ways, either a child who needs additional proprioceptive input or a child who is sensitive to the input and needs less of it. Proprioception can be tricky though because some kids benefit from additional proprioceptive input for other reasons such as if they become overstimulated in pretty much any other area of sensory processing. So keep this in mind if you're working with a child who has things like auditory sensitivities, like we just talked about, proprioceptive activities and techniques could help these children be more calm and less overstimulated in addition to reducing the auditory stimuli. Proprioception is knowing where our body is in space or in the world. It is detected by the tension in muscles and joints. So how is this a problem for sleep, you might ask? It may seem obvious that a child would know if they're laying down in their bed. While this is possibly true, the child's body may generally be craving sensory input on their body or the opposite where their body has already had enough input and they don't want any more. In the first example where they are wanting more input, the child may need heavier blankets, compression, massage, vibration, smashing or squeezing activities at or near bedtime. These are things we consider to provide deep pressure to their body. Some recommendations for parents to try and help with sleeping in this case are things like having them use a weighted blanket while the parent reads them a few books at bedtime, having squeeze time where the parent might give the child gentle but firm squeezes from head to toe, or a giant body squeeze like squishing the child between pillows or cushions before bed. You can also get something called squeezer sheets for their beds. These are amazing. It's a lycra sheet that goes around their mattress 
and it gives a gentle but constant pressure on their whole basically body. If you know how to sew, you could probably make them yourself. I have purchased these on Etsy before and I'll put a link for that in the show notes for today. Having tighter fitting clothing at bedtime like spandex shorts or pants or even cotton pajamas that are just more fitted rather than baggy could be helpful. You can buy things like a vibrating pillow and these are not the kind of pillows that you lay your head on for sleeping necessarily but more of a pillow that they could hold on to or wrap their arms around to feel the gentle vibration. There's stuffed animals called warmies that warm up in the microwave and they're also slightly weighted. They're pretty nice for added sensory input as well. Obviously, please follow the safety guidelines and recommendations for any of these things. I assume that you understand that I give this information for you to consider, but that doesn't mean for you to use it freely with any child. It needs to be um, within the recommendations. You really, really, really need to look at each child and determine what is safe for them to try. For example, I wouldn't give a vibrating pillow to a child with a seizure disorder. That seems obvious, but still needs to be said. And I wouldn't use a squeezer sheet with a child that didn't have the motor skills to easily get out from underneath it if they wanted to. Basically common sense, but it is our job to consider these things when making recommendations to parents and also help them be informed. In the second example where they don't want more input, they might be a child who won't ever sleep with a blanket on. They may not like to have their back rubbed or get padded to go to sleep. This may actually be more irritating or stimulating to them. It's not always the case, but it is often that a child in this situation may also be tactically sensitive and they sleep better in a one piece zip up sleeper with long sleeves than any other outfit, even in the middle of the summer. These usually keep their skin covered so they don't get cold at night, especially since they don't want to keep blankets on themselves a lot of times. The long sleeves keeps their skin covered and therefore protected, meaning they are not constantly being stimulated by the bed, the sheets, and things touching their skin all night. The long sleeved outfit is a constant and it is easier for them to be able to rest. These are often the kids that really struggle when the seasons change, especially when they are going from winter into spring and summer. They like the long sleeve shirts and pants then all of a sudden we start putting shorts and t-shirts on them and they don't like it. Parents may struggle with trying to get them dressed in the morning more than usual. This may be a child who prefers to wear their winter snow boots all year long and who will not wear sandals no matter what you do. Some strategies for bedtime with a child in this situation might be things like taking a bath and having a lotion massage as part of bedtime routine or using a sensory brushing protocol. I won't get too much into those, but my guess is a lot of times with kids in this case, they are sensitive to other sensory input, not just tactile sensations. So by the time bedtime rolls around, their body is over it for the day. Maybe they had too much auditory or visual stimuli that day. When those systems get overwhelmed, it can make the child feel even more sensitive to things touching their body and skin. Other strategies for a child like this will need to involve things like dimming the lights in the evening, turning off things around the house that make a lot of noise, especially if they are in common areas where the child hangs out. Things like TVs with the nightly news on or a clothes dryer. I know that evenings are a time when parents get home from work and want to talk about their day. A lot of conversations happen in the evening when everyone gets home from work and school, or at least they did before the stay at home orders came into effect. This might be a time when the child who is sensitive to sounds has difficulty sleeping at night may need to be excused from this part of the family's routine. 
it may be better to let the child go to a quiet, calm place where they can just chill, basically decompress from the day, and escape the additional input of auditory sensations during this evening time where everyone else might be catching up on the day's events. Parents don't always understand that these kids may need extra time to de-stimulate from the day and get back to where their body feels calm again before they expect them to just go to sleep. Let them, and in fact, encourage them to go to a quiet area, a place designated for them to go and have their peace for a while. It will look different for every child, but consider things like dimming the lights, dim sounds, or no sounds, or calming music, a favorite toy or books, weighted objects, vibrating pillow, headphones, beanbag chair, a play tent with pillows in it. This can be hard for some parents because they really want their child to be part of the family dynamic, part of the evening when everyone in the family is coming together to hang out. But this may not be the best thing for the child. And if the parents are concerned about their child being able to sleep at night, they may need to shift their conceptions for the child's sake. Okay, I've kind of slipped off the sensory cliff away from proprioception, but that happens. So I want to switch over to vestibular now. And I will say that there are activities and strategies that are considered to be vestibular strategies, but many of them also have a proprioceptive component to them as well. It's pretty difficult to talk about vestibular without including proprioception because of this. I think I can can explain it in that the activities that involve movement and deep pressure can be beneficial for kids with vestibular sensory issues. Although the main focus and consideration with vestibular issues is where the child's head is in space. So I'm going to focus on that part of it and just understand that many of the vestibular strategies will also include proprioceptive benefits. I also want to mention that most of the time, kids who have difficulties with sleeping due to vestibular issues, it's kids who crave more movement. They need additional vestibular input. The main difficulties that parents report in this case are that the child takes a long time to wind down to fall asleep, and they may not stay asleep very long at one time once they do fall asleep, or they might get up very early in the morning after staying awake until very late at night. On the other hand, kids that seem to resist vestibular input or are hypersensitive to movement usually don't have as much difficulty with sleeping, or I should say their parents usually don't report as many concerns with sleep routines. They might prefer sedentary activities. Basically, they may not feel the need to move as much as other kids. They're generally more content to just sit and play. So once they're laying down, they're usually okay. These are kids whose parent might report they tried rocking them to sleep as a baby and they would cry and fuss. But if I just laid them down in their bed, they would stop crying and fall asleep fairly easily on their own. Now that is a huge generalization and definitely not the rule for 100% of the kiddos out there that fit that description. I will say that if a parent has a concern with sleep routines for their child who prefers less movement, the main concern is a lot of times that they sleep too much. I know many of you are thinking, now why would that be a problem? That sounds awesome. But the problem usually comes when number one, the child is an infant, and if they have some type of concerns with gaining weight, the parent will report having a difficult time waking the infant for their nighttime feeding when they're trying to get a certain amount of calories in for that 24 hour, hour period of time. And second, when the child is a little older and let's say they need to get up to go to preschool or when they are in elementary school, they may have a difficult time waking up and becoming alert in the morning to get ready for the day especially if the parent or parents have to go to work and they want to get there on time. This can make morning time routines a little more stressful.
For the purpose of the show, I will focus more on those kiddos that actually need additional vestibular stimulation in order to be physically ready to go to bed. The concept of giving a child more stimulation at or slightly before bedtime seems counterintuitive to a lot of people. Parents are pretty skeptical when I suggest to them that they encourage these types of activities as part of the bedtime routine. But if they truly give it a try and the child gets enough movement, not too much, then the parents become big time believers. I want to back up and say that for kiddos that really crave movement, just giving it before bedtime is not going to be enough for them, most likely. They will probably benefit from getting additional movement activities all spread out throughout the whole day too. So what type of activities am I talking about here? I'm talking about activities that get the child's head moving. We need to explain the purpose of the activities to parents because otherwise all they, are, all they see are activities that are going to get their child even more excited and possibly hyper than they already are. The point is not random bouncing, running, jumping, and spinning. The specific point is to get the child's head moving. Anytime there's a change in head position and a change in speed of head moving through space. Let me clarify this. A change in head position is where their head is in a different plane of space. Their head may be tilted forward, down to one side or the other, or back, things like that. This may require their entire body to move into a different plane of space in order to achieve these head movements too. Keep in mind though, that just because the body changes position doesn't mean their head actually changes position. You really need to observe the activity and make sure that their head is specifically changing position. The point of moving their head to give additional input to the semicircular canals that are located in our inner ears. The fluid inside the canals moves when you move your head. When the fluid moves, it also stimulates the hair cells located in the inner ear. The, the hair cells are what gives the brain the information that it needs to feel satisfied. Essentially, the more the inner ear canals are stimulated, the more input the brain receives that the head is moving and is therefore getting the sensory input that it needs to feel good or to feel calm and ready. It's getting that need met. I have the link to a two-minute YouTube video in the show notes on today's episode that explains this in another way that is also pretty simplified but helpful. It has some uh, really nice visuals too. Now the change in head position is not all you need to think about. The other piece of this that I mentioned before is the speed of the head moving through space. Anytime there is a start and a stop of the movement, this is alerting or stimulating for the child. This is how they get their sensory needs met. This may explain why we see some kids who rock back and forth. This may explain why some kids just seem to be jumping all the time. The back and forth or up and down motions do provide a stop or at least a change in direction of that fluid in their inner ears each time they move. This is why some kids are able to spin around in so many circles you think they will certainly throw up or at least be dizzy, but they don't and they seem perfectly fine once they stop to go ahead and start spinning right away again. You might be thinking, well, those kids are getting their own needs met by doing these activities. The problem is, especially with little kids that I work with in early intervention, is that they intuitively seem to know that they need to move, or at least they do it because it feels good. But they, of course, don't fully understand the sensory aspect of it, and they're usually not able to get enough movement and enough variety of head positions and changes of speed to actually fulfill their sensory needs.
Jumping around a large part of the day only gets the head moving up and down with the head in an upright position basically the whole time. By doing this movement, they are potentially only activating one of the semicircular canals. We need to get those other head tilting positions in there in order to stimulate all three of those semicircular canals. One is vertical, one is horizontal, and one is tilted at an angle between horizontal and vertical. Keep in mind, let's talk about how to help these families with bedtime routines. So remember first that I mentioned that the activities for vestibular stimulation should be incorporated into the child's routine throughout the day as much as possible. This doesn't mean the parent noticed that their child spent a lot of time jumping on the couch at random times today. This means the parents actually encouraged the child to participate in some specific purposeful movement activities. While the effects of these movements on their sensory system are temporary, the more often they do these activities, the idea is that this gives their body more chances to regulate. Because my guess would be that this system is affecting more than just sleep. I'm sure it is affecting other parts of their day as well, which I'm not going to get into for this show. But even if they aren't getting these movements in during the day, they need to make sure and do it as part of their bedtime routine at a minimum. The general rule with vestibular input is that they need to get 20 minutes of intense sustained movements in order to fully meet their sensory needs. If you do too little movements, they might get ramped up, be overly active, but never get to the point where they actually reached the appropriate level for their body to become regulated. To where they've reached the limit, they need to reach for their body to decide it feels calm and ready to rest. This is not because we've quote unquote worn them out by making them do all of these active movements for such a long time. This is a sensory response in their brain that lets them know when they have fulfilled that sensory need. The way to get this done will vary from individual to individual and family to family, depending on all of the variables that come with each situation. It might look something like this. A typical evening routine might be dinner, play, bath time, brushing teeth, read a story, and go to bed. This is a nice routine and will most likely work for a lot of families. However, for families with a child who has vestibular needs, the routine is missing a big, important time, movement. I would recommend adding this into the routine 30 minutes before the child will be getting into bed to go to sleep. I think it works well to keep the last part of the typical routine, such as reading a book as the final activity before getting into bed. Not only is this an activity that both parents and children often like, but it is a consistent activity that will signal the end of movement time and begin the transition towards bedtime. Of course, the routine doesn't have to involve reading a book. It might involve singing songs or any other activity that families do at bedtime. That is perfectly fine. Keep those the same. The book was just one example of an option. The point is to have something that is consistent after you are done with the movements before getting into bed or while getting into bed to go to sleep. If you already know what movement activities the child enjoys, then I would suggest adding those into the list for this time of day. If you don't know for sure, then you and the family will need to explore some of the activities and add or remove them on a trial basis. This whole concept, even when you know activities that the child enjoys, will be a trial and error event because some days they prefer certain activities and other days they prefer something completely different. It will take some effort on the part of the parents to get through these sometimes, but if they can do it, they should ultimately see results. 
I mentioned 20 minutes because that seems to be the common amount of time that is needed to meet the needs. But this could also vary per individual, so keep that in mind. It is really, really hard to get a full 20 minutes in sometimes. Even with kids who really want the movements, getting them to do them when you want them to do them and for as long as you need them to do them can be difficult. I would recommend having a list of options based on what the family has in their home, what the child likes, and what the parents can physically do. At least one parent and possibly a sibling may need to get active with them in order to encourage the child to do these things too. You may need to give them a plan to help them, you may need to give them, meaning the parents, a plan to help them meet all of the vestibular movement directions. Consider having the parents set up a circuit or an obstacle course. This will provide the variety of movements needed and will often help keep the child interested in continuing on with more activities. The family can set up the activities before getting started and make changes or allow the child to make changes to them as they get started. One sample circuit might be something like jumping on a mini trampoline for 10 jumps, pushing five small boxes one at a time across the room and stacking them up on a table. If these were slightly weighted, that would be an an added benefit too. Swinging in a blanket side to side while singing a short song like ABCs or Itsy Bitsy Spider and then repeat the whole thing with adaptations as necessary. This, These activities that I just mentioned would hit the up and down motion with the jumping, the head tilted forward to push the small boxes across the floor, and tilted back to lift the boxes and stack them up higher and higher. And the blanket swinging gets them laying back. So again, tilting their head backwards and also moving in the side to side direction with the the stop and change direction frequent. Um, Another example might be log rolling across the floor to the other side of the room and back um, again, the opposite direction sitting on a yoga ball and bouncing up and down independently or with assistance as needed. Include tilting side to side with this, either slightly while bouncing or just rolling the ball side to side. And also sitting across from the parents on the floor holding hands and rocking their body forward and backward, singing, row your boat. These get the head tilted to the side and moving, stopping, and moving again the opposite way, up and down movements and the forward and back movements in that specific set of activities. These are just a couple of examples. There are so many combinations of these that can be done and many other options of activities. You can help parents out with finding activities that hit all of the different movement directions so they're getting all of those in each night. It might be helpful to make three lists for them so they can pick from each of the lists at night to make sure they're getting all of the areas. So some activities will go on multiple lists because they hit multiple things at one time. You can also organize them into categories or columns on one page, um, like vertical, horizontal, and angled with reference to head position relative to the ground. And then subcategories within each of these categories might be the actions, things like up and down, forward and back, side to side, and rotation. For example, in the vertical category where the head is upright, so the top of their head is facing the ceiling, subcategory activities would be things like up and down, jumping on a trampoline, jumping jacks, bouncing on a ball, bouncing on your knee, squat to stand activities, going up and down a slide or teeter-totters. Then forward and back examples are things like swinging, row your boat while moving your body back and forth, 
riding a tricycle or a ride-on toy, sitting on a laundry basket or on a blanket while someone pulls them around, a rocking chair or a gliding chair, and side to side might be things like laying in a blanket and having someone gently swing them side to side, sitting on a ball while someone helps roll it side to side, or swinging in a hammock or on a platform swing or things like that. And finally, rotation might be things like sitting on an office chair and spinning it around or on some type of a sensory swing that will allow spinning. Um, sit and spins, hold in, holding hands with their parents and singing a song while they walk around in a circle going each direction. These are just a few of obviously hundreds of examples. I wanna make sure that I mention that if at any time a child says they want to stop the activity, please let them stop. Most likely kids who are seeking out the movements won't get to the point where they feel dizzy or nauseous from these activities and they'll want to stop, but it does happen. Spinning activities and swinging especially can make some kids feel sick or nauseous or dizzy or whatever. We don't want to make them throw up or feel any negative effects from these activities. That is not the point. So please listen to them if they are saying they want to stop. And if you notice they just aren't looking too great, but they can't express how they're feeling, uh, maybe because they don't have the words or the ability, go ahead and stop. Give them a break and monitor, see how they're doing. And if they request to continue or if they are okay with, when you start continuing, then go ahead. Like I said, it probably won't be that much of an issue with the kiddos that we're discussing today who are wanting and needing the movement sensations, but it is something to keep in mind anytime you're doing these activities with any child. Um, the third category for today's show after sensory is behavior. And of course, this can range from minor to severe behaviors, but they're still behaviors all the same. And that being said, the general treatment or strategy for this will most likely be the same, regardless of whether the behavior is minor or severe or anything in between. I know that sensory issues can also affect behaviors, but for this moment, I'm really just talking strictly about behavior, assuming that nothing else is a factor right now, not medical or sensory or anything. So right now I'm just talking about a child who refuses to go to sleep. The reaction they get from the parents or caregiver and all of the results of all those factors. I know this is extremely vague, but for a reason, because the answer is generally the same. Be consistent and follow through with the plan. The behavior were typically get worse or last longer and possibly become more intense before it starts to get better or eventually go away. Whether you're telling me that the child gets up and plays with toys in their room instead of going to sleep, comes out of their room again and again, climbs into your bed at midnight every night, or any other scenario, my answer for you will be be consistent and follow through with the plan. Now, what is the plan? This varies, obviously, family to family. There is no possible way for me to give you all the examples of a behavior plan for this situation. Each plan will be specific to the family, child, and situation. It might be as simple as a token system. The child can earn whatever, a sticker or a quarter or M&M the next morning if they stay in their room and don't come out. They might earn a happy face for staying in or a sad face for coming out. And each sad face might take away one minute of TV time the next day. And the one happy face might earn an extra five minutes or something like that. Any variation of a token economy system could be considered. Now, not all kids in this age group will be able to understand this. And it may not be motivating enough for them even if they do understand it. Either way, though, the plan should include sending them back into the room and when they come out with minimal 
um, verbal and physical attention given to them when they do. A few words and maybe a quick hug or something like that and back to bed. Long conversations or long cuddle sessions or any type of action that allows them to stay up longer could potentially encourage them to come out more and seek that attention again. Mixed signals from you can be confusing to them. Why sometimes it's okay and other times it's not okay, especially for a child in this younger group. Now, I'm not suggesting anybody be mean to a child. So, of course, don't do that. Um, just don't be overly indulgent at the same time. So, if, you know, this is a unique situation, that that's a whole different story. If one time in the past month a child gets up and comes out of the room because whatever the reason, I would not consider that a concerning behavior that we need a plan of action for. But you still might want to be careful that that one time coming out and getting positive attention and rewarding feelings, it doesn't encourage them to want to do it again the next night, incidentally. Sometimes we can inadvertently reinforce actions when we're just trying to be caring, compassionate, loving parents. Those actions that are or would be one time or rare events could end up being repeated ones where you might start to call it an unwanted behavior. The final category for the show is considering that any combination of the three, medical, sensory, and behavioral reasons could be contributing to a child have, having difficulty sleeping. Sometimes we have to admit that no matter how much we know about a child, we don't always know exactly why they do certain things. I know I outlined this entire episode by separating out medical, sensory, and behavior, but in real life, we wouldn't do this. Although we may consider each category or reason for the sleep issues, we usually do this to either rule it out or in and keep going with the rest of the possibilities in the same way. Now, as a parent, we tend to default to medical reasons as being the first possible explanation. For one, we don't want our kids to have some ailment that is keeping them awake, especially if it is something that we can address easily um, and make them more comfortable to go to sleep. And secondly, we don't necessarily want to jump to the reason our child is not sleeping is because of some behavior. I think most of the time, giving kids the benefit of the doubt in this regard um, and looking towards medical or sensory reasons as the reasons for sleep issues is pretty common. Obviously, we do want to try and take care of any possible medical or sensory needs first anyway, because this will give the child a chance to be physically prepared for sleep and we can handle the behavioral aspect after that if it applies and if it's needed. Otherwise, if we just jump to treating it as a behavior and look past possible medical or sensory needs, the child may continue to struggle and that might be something they don't have control over. Also, the behavior strategies will probably not be successful if the reason for the sleep issue is actually due to a medical issue instead of behavioral issue. For example, let's say the child frequently has issues with gas and bloating in their daily life, which is pretty common with a lot of infants. If this happens to be affecting them at night and you haven't ruled that out, they may not be able to sleep even with sensory or behavioral treatments because the core medical issue has not been addressed first. Regardless, as therapists, we can help parents work through these thought processes. As a person with a more objective viewpoint, we may be able to see things a little differently and help them come up with a plan for whatever the reasons are for the issues with sleeping. This is not always an easy process, but there are usually a lot of best guesses and trials and errors involved. Um, as an occupational therapist, this is an area that we can help parents with. I will also say though, that if we figure out that the sleep issues are really more related to behavioral reasons than anything else, I will not hesitate to consult with my team special instructor for additional guidance if needed. 
I think I'm going to in there for today. Um, check my website for a link to CEUs for this episode. It is a one hour episode, which means you will get a full credit instead of a half credit for um, this show, which normally my shows are 30 minutes. While you are there, click on the link for my Patreon site, if you would, and you can support me for only $1 a month and start getting the bonus content on Patreon. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.